Uh, many people liken uh, the, the virus uh, cancer program to a moonshot. In that case, it's a moonshot that was building a rocket for a planet people couldn't agree was even out there. That was Robin Scheffler, Associate Professor in the Science, Technology, and Society program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Scheffler is also the author of A Contagious Cause, The American Hunt for Cancer Viruses and the Rise of Molecular Medicine. He's a historian of the modern biological and biomedical sciences and their intersections with developments in American history. I'm Alexandria Carolyn, Associate Editor of the Cancer History Project. In this episode, Scheffler outlines the historical controversies surrounding the study of viral oncology, as well as the beginning of NCI's viral oncology program, which received a huge boost in funding after the signing of the National Cancer Act. At the time, the role viruses played in cancer, or whether they played any role at all, was unknown. This could have been a huge and embarrassing waste of money, but the gamble paid off, ultimately leading to modern developments in immunotherapy. I thought it would be good just to start from the beginning. Um, you know, where does a, a contagious cause begin? Um, what year do you start off at and, and what, what's important there? Uh, there's a, a number of places that it uh, it begins. I When I started writing the book, I actually started in the middle of the 20th century, and I was uh, fascinated by uh, the relationship between cancer research and the growth of molecular biology, and I was uh, especially intrigued that uh, so much basic work in virology was being funded by uh, the National Institutes of Health, and it seemed very far from human health, and I was especially intrigued that these things called tumor viruses seem to be playing this really important role uh, in bridging uh, basic molecular biology with its application to human health. And I was especially confused because back then I didn't realize that cancer was thought of ever as a contagious or viral disease. And so to start a contagious cause, I went farther and farther back trying to find where that idea had come from. And it's an idea that really goes back to antiquity. Uh, you have concerns expressed by Greek surgeons that so-called seeds of cancer tumors can be spread uh, both within the bodies of the people they were uh, operating on and possibly between people. And then really by the 19th century, with the emergence of germ theory, you see many, many discussions of uh, the idea that cancer is contagious and can be passed from, from person to person. Uh, there's a great deal of uh, fear and concern for so-called cancer houses uh, in 19th century Britain and France, which are houses where people are all seeming to come down with cancer and Although there's environmental explanations offered in terms of having bad air, uh, people begin to think maybe this is evidence uh, of a contagious uh, and infectious cancer uh, cause. And this idea really is then everywhere in the early 20th century. And what I find interesting is that it's an idea which is often there in the negative. Uh, so if you look at early uh, campaign and public education materials from the American Asso uh, Society for the Control of Cancer, which becomes the American Cancer Society, they are still at pains to say cancer is not contagious. And it's also uh, not hereditary, which they consider to be a too, of a, too much of a pessimistic framing of cancer. And that's remained remarkably constant through the 20th century. If you go onto the, uh, the American Cancer Society website today, you can still find the assurance that cancer is not contagious, which indeed it isn't uh, in the sense that you can't catch cancer from somebody who, who already has it. But of course, there are a number of viruses that we now associate with cancer. And so I'm, as a historian, was in this mode of having a sense of where the story ended, but then looking at people really grappling with a lot of really big questions about the nature of cancer, uh, the nature of infection, and the nature of viruses in the early 20th century when none of these things were settled. Got it. And, and when did this idea of cancer as a contagion morph into 
you know, the, the study, the regimented study of viral oncology? Uh, it's, a, it's a gradual uh, transformation. I, it I begins with sort of the I, codification of sort of the, the formalization of some, some of the ideas of germ theory uh, into uh, microbiology and bacteriology. Uh, and there, of course, the major uh, development is Koch's postulates as a way of experimentally linking an infectious agent uh, with a disease. Uh, and people are trying to then take that basic uh, framework and apply it to the growth of tumors. And uh, although there's uh, some, uh, some, I think that by the Danish researchers, uh, Ellerman and Banks, who start looking at this in relationship to chicken leukemia, uh, leukemia isn't yet considered a cancer, speaking of the unsettled nature of cancer in the early 20th century. So the person who really plays a major role in this uh, is somebody working at the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research named Peyton Rouse. Uh, and Rouse really has this fascinating uh, sort of interdisciplinary background uh, for the time in where he's trained in both pathology and pathologists spend a lot of time examining uh, cancer tumors uh, as in the, in the case of post-mortem examination. It's not really a therapeutic uh, technique. It's a way of diagnosing what somebody died of after the fact. Uh, with uh, training in uh, bacteriology and microbiology, which was a forward-looking sort of potentially curative uh, side of medical practice. And uh, Rouse was trained in both of those at uh, Johns Hopkins University. He has spent some teaching in both of them when he's uh, at Michigan. He's working as a researcher at the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. And he really just wants to be able to grow a tumor in a lab. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a, a major issue for scientific studies of cancers. They can't replicate cancer uh, other than waiting for it to appear seemingly at random in humans and animals. So his big goal is simply to create a system for studying cancer in the lab. And he thinks that he'll hopefully be able to get it uh, potentially from avian tumors. And so he really goes around Long Island, uh, which has a large chicken breeding industry at the time, sort of feeding uh, the city of New York, uh, asking farmers if they have chickens with, with tumors. Uh, and eventually gets a, a Plymouth rock hen, I think in 1909, that has a tumor. And he spends time sort of trying to uh, Actually, you know, takes the tumor uh, and unfortunately kills the kills the chicken, uh, and then uh, grinds it up and sees if he can uh, transplant fragments of that tumor into other healthy chickens and recreate the tumor. Uh, and he can't. So that's like a very so that's a success from the, just having a, a transplantable tumor uh, in a bird, which had never been uh, it, no one had yet uh, you know otherwise found. And then he goes farther because of his training in microbiology. And he's like, well, what's the smallest part of this tumor? that can really be used to transmit it from, from bird to bird. And there he starts grinding it up and passing it through a series of uh, basically household water filters uh, to sort of like filter out smaller and smaller particles. Uh, and what he finds of course, is that there's what he calls a non-filterable agent, something that his filters can't block, which means it's gotta be smaller than a bacteria, uh, which is still capable of transmitting the tumor from sort of one generation of unfortunate chickens to, to the other. Uh, and he begins uh, in the, at the end of 1910 and then in some of his published work in 1911 to start talking about this as a potential uh, tumor virus. So I'm curious, um, I know that, I, I believe Epstein-Barr was the first of the uh, cancer viruses to be discovered, is that right? The timeline of how we sort of, how we tell these stories sort of changes because like Epstein-Barr uh, was identified as uh, the result of a, a, a Scotch-Irish a Scotch surgeon uh, named uh, Dennis Burkett, uh, who was working in Sub-Saharan Africa uh, in the 1950s. And he became uh, interested in uh, tracing the incidence of a unusual form of uh, lymphoma, which is now called Burkett uh, lymphoma. And one of the reasons that he relied on this is because in Sub-Saharan Africa, there was not uh, an extensive diagnostic infrastructure 
And unfortunately, children get Burkitt's lymphoma. It grows very rapidly. Uh, it creates, uh, you know, very striking outward uh, sort of uh, manifestations. So you don't need to have a, a microscope or even a, a diagnostic laboratory to, to sort of identify a case of Burkitt's lymphoma. And so he begins to, yeah, uh, drive, uh, goes on what he calls a tumor safari uh, through sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and then I, based on the map he compiles of where these cases appear, begins to look a lot like the map of some of the infectious diseases uh, that the, the uh, at that point, the Rockefeller Foundation's uh, Virus Research Institute, uh, that was also based uh, outside of uh, uh, in, in Uganda, is identifying. They begins to suspect maybe there's a, a mosquito-borne uh, infectious cause for it, uh, and that brings uh, I think Epstein uh, hears uh, about some of this work, and they begin to fly samples of uh, of lymphoma tissue up to London, where they're being uh, I, I analyzed by Yvonne Barr under the electron microscope, and they begin to sort of find these small uh, particles uh, in the tumors that they think might be viruses. Uh, but of course, the challenge there is that under Koch's postulates, you would then have to reinfect people or reinfect an experimental organism to demonstrate that those, those viral particles were responsible for cancer, which of course, mercifully, nobody is doing. Uh, so Epstein-Barr is identified as a potential candidate in the 50s, uh, but it takes substantially longer and it also takes several revisions in how we think about the causation of viral cancers to sort of see it as a potential human cancer virus, uh, you know, several decades later. And by that point, you're beginning to sort of see uh, the emergence of hepatitis B uh, and its association with liver cancer uh, and sort of the papillomaviruses and sort of a whole other, you know, a whole other families of viruses are now being uh, considered. And so in that sense, it's identified earlier, but the link is sort of established. Uh, so it's a, retros it's a retrospective uh, sort of view of when the discovery was. I think in uh, in terms of uh, real time, sort of when people were sort of discovering something and recognizing it as a potential human uh, cancer virus, you have the work uh, that uh, Robert Gallo and others at the uh, National Cancer Institute did uh, with uh, human tumor leukemia viruses, uh, which are uh, which end up being associated with uh, HIV. And then, of course, the epidemiological linkage between hepatitis B infection in uh, Taiwan and rising rates of liver cancer. And those are both things that are happening sort of right at the end of the war on cancer, as it's formally known in the 70s. So it takes a that's one of the fascinating things about this story is that uh, the endings are never quite written at the moment that people are making are doing the work is sort of things that people often figure out only after several more work, decades of sort of study and debate and argument. Right. No, that's great. And and you've you've interest you've mentioned some uh, interesting sounding characters um, throughout this. Can you walk me through um, who who did you profile in this book and you know what I basically like what stories did you decide to tell on behalf of them? Yeah, it's just, I mean, so one of the, there's a, such a huge variety of people involved with it. You have uh, patients, of course, who are suffering from cancer and trying to understand uh, what, uh, what has happened to them. You have, you have doctors who are trying to cure cancer. You have molecular biologists who are interested in sort of decoding the, the nature of life. You have uh, activists uh, and you have uh, administrators of the National Cancer Institute are sort of trying to fulfill their uh, mandate to, to make people healthy. And so yeah, there's, just, there's so many characters. I, mean, I, I start my book uh, with somebody who I only know by uh, her first name, uh, mm -hmm. Joanna, who's a young girl in Niles, Illinois, in the 1950s, uh, in the early 1960s, uh, after the town undergoes what they think of as a leukemia outbreak. Uh, and she's a survivor of that leukemia outbreak, which is thought to be uh, infectious. And when a photographer from Life magazine comes to do a follow-up story, uh, she insists uh, as, a young, as a young woman only being photographed with her back to the camera. So she couldn't be identified because she's so afraid of being stigmatized 
as a cancer carrier. And that's a story that's really uh, st stuck with me. Uh, you have people like Peyton Rouse who sort of bridge these different worlds of, uh, of medicine uh, and science, and, but are still coming up against the, the difficulties of their own experience, which is that people aren't catching cancer on a routine basis. Uh, and then one of the most uh, fascinating characters is somebody I come across in the uh, really sort of starting after the Second World War named Mary Lasker, who I'm sure will be familiar to many uh, listeners of this podcast, uh, who is really, people have known about Mary Lasker for a while, there's the Lasker Awards, but I spent a while uh, sort of looking over her shoulder in her archives at Columbia University, uh, reading her oral histories. And she is just such a fascinating uh, activist. I think that she often is sort of presented by, by doctors as a somewhat daffy, uh, sort of out of, out of touch uh, socialite, but she really was this incredibly powerful and sophisticated uh, sort of advocate. And she was somebody who was a new, a very invested in the New Deal. Uh, she was, was in favor of contraception. Uh, she was married to Albert Lasker, who was actually a moderate Republican. So I think being at their dinner table would have been very uh, interesting. And she, how it was listened to him though, when he sort of talked about the power of government money. And she started off sort of trying to get the federal government after the second world war to pass a Manhattan project against cancer. Uh, that failed largely on the grounds of doctors feeling that it was too much money uh, to, and they, she didn't really understand why doctors weren't concerned for curing cancer. Uh, and she eventually becomes this uh, sort of sophisticated navigator of the, of the Washington budget process. And she figures out she can't pass one big piece of legislation. She can start to remake the NCI uh, in the image of the type of institution she wants. She quintuples its budget in the 1950s and really instills a lot of urgency into the idea that the government should be curing cancer through research, which of course then transforms how we do cancer research uh, everywhere. That, and she's not, she's not done by the end of the 1960s uh, when uh, sort of the Vietnam War is beginning to put pressure on medical research uh, and people are becoming disillusioned that there hasn't been more progress. And she of course is also as a New Deal Democrat is losing her connections to the new Nixon White House. She invents the idea in many ways of grassroots activism against cancer uh, for the 1971 war on cancer, working with this uh, a, a pharmacologist from Missouri named Solomon Garb, where she really remakes cancer activism again from being something that was being pursued sort of in the halls of power in Congress into something that was like a matter of national uh, concern. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's another, uh, and, and so her, her story is really just in terms of both enabling so much cancer research, but also giving it that, giving cancer research itself this like moral weight that's supposed to combat disease. I think she's just sort of She's wonderful. And I have, a, I have a few others that I can mention if, you, if you'd like me to. I'm curious about how the field of viral oncology really grew um, as a result of the work of Mary Lasker and the National Cancer Act. When, when did this start, you know, becoming more of a thing? <laughs> yeah, so uh, viral oncology has a, well, it's one of the reasons I find it so fascinating is it's not a story of straightforward progress. They spend a lot of time, viral oncologists spend a lot of time being confused and frustrated. Uh, Peyton Rouse, for example, comes up with the idea that there might be a chicken tumor virus, and he has to wait until 1966 uh, for his Nobel Prize, which recognizes the importance of his work, which I think at that point was the, the single longest gap between the work and the, and the prize that uh, was on record. And really, by the, by the 1930s, uh, most people, you know, people in cancer research as a whole, had stepped away from cancer viruses as a potential way of understanding human cancer. There are a few people working on it but it's just uh, considered too challenging to demonstrate it and it runs in the face of clinical experience. Uh, once again, people aren't getting epidemics of cancer spreading the way that they have, and they're very familiar with other viral epidemics. So, uh, and virus virology itself, uh, it's only by the 
end of the 1930s and in the 40s that you begin to have things widespread access to things and the development of things like the electron microscope or ultracentrifuges or these other uh, sophisticated instruments that make it possible for us to think about viruses in the way that we do today as actual small discrete objects. Uh, sort of before, before these tools make them visible, uh, they really do have this very odd amorphous instance of like they're not living, they're not dead, uh, they're too small to be seen, but they're uh, but they're also somehow still present. So it's a very it's a it's a challenge not just for cancer virology, but for virologists as a whole. Uh, so one one way that this this uh, field of viral oncology comes back uh, in the fifties is through the application of these new instruments for virology that had been developed for say working on the influenza vaccine uh, during the Second World War. Uh, or critically uh, for uh, the polio vaccine campaign and bringing them to bear on, uh, on the problem of cancer. Uh, but what I found when I was writing my book is that only gets you so far. Uh, so I, there's a, a, a Polish, uh, a Jewish Polish uh, refugee uh, named Leon Demachowski, uh, who is, becomes a huge advocate of the electron microscope and is working in Houston, Texas at MD Anderson. And he's taking sections of uh, mammary, uh, uh, mam uh, mammary tumors and claiming to show that there's viral virus particles uh, at the scene of the crime in the words of the Boston Globe. And at a conference, uh, another one of his colleagues who's a virologist gets up and just says very acidly, I'd like to remind Dr. Domachowski that images are unlabeled under the electron microscope. And so even these new technological devices don't settle the debate or the skepticism that people generally have about how viruses could cause cancer. And I in my mind, what really revised the field of viral oncology and lays the, the framework for the National Cancer Institute becoming involved in the 1950s uh, is the success of the polio vaccine campaign. And polio, once again, from our perspective, seems like a very straightforward success story, but really in the aftermath of the Second World War, there was a lot of confusion and debate as to how possible it would be to develop a polio vaccine to culture the virus outside of uh, living hosts, uh, and even uh, if it was appropriate to sort of ask scientists to do that. Uh, and of course, in that case, the, the, the March of Dimes, the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, mount this incredibly aggressive uh, push that results in a polio vaccine in a much shorter time than most scientific experts had predicted. And this really feeds into the cancer virus development story in two ways. First, it just is, it gives an overall sense of enthusiasm that mm -hmm. this is something where you can set a broad, ambitious goals and actually realize them if you spend enough money. And that's something that people working at the National Cancer Institute on, Institute on Cancer Viruses talk about all the time. Uh, secondly, I, with the development of the polio vaccine, there's a lot of polio virologists who are out of a job because they no longer have money from the, uh, to develop, because they, they, they basically did what they were expected to do. And so a number of people bring their training and sophistication in virology uh, to bear on the study of cancer. And so you also have a movement of scientists uh, from polio uh, into different forms of cancer viruses, especially initially into studying uh, uh, Rouse sarcoma virus and, uh, uh, and various leukemia viruses in animals. And as these scientists start to work on, on, on especially tumor viruses in animals, they begin to say like, look, if what must be true of animals must will, will be true of humans. We're just waiting on <laughs> our opportunity to sort of invest in the necessary infrastructure to make that discovery. That's fascinating. Um... Now, what was the consensus of the medical community on the idea of viruses possibly causing cancer? Was it accepted or? Yeah, this was something that I spent a lot of time struggling with when I was uh, writing A Contagious Cause. I, I started to see that by the late 1960s, 
the National Cancer Institute spends an incredible amount of money on viral oncology. Uh, they eventually set up uh, a series of programs, uh, the Special Leukemia Virus Program, the Special Virus Cancer Program, and then just the Virus Cancer Program, uh, which are using these managerial methods taken from the Defense Department and NASA to oversee the discovery of a human cancer virus and the development of a vaccine. And this is really, really big science. It's bigger than the Human Genome Project. Uh, and so my first thought was, okay, what was the discovery or the scientific consensus that happened to make that program possible? And I went back sort of, you know, uh, reading, reading the medical literature, reading the scientific literature, reading annual reports of the American Cancer Society, reading congressional testimony, trying to find like why people had agreed that this really controversial idea suddenly merited the investment of what in, our, in today's terms would be billions of dollars uh, in, 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 in medical research. And I couldn't find it. I like there are many people who are advocates of the idea that viruses are involved in cancer, but for every one of those people who's saying that, you can find several very prominent and very cogent skeptics, uh, not just from medicine, from virology, from a whole set of fields. So it's a case where there's no agreement on the actual uh, existence of cancer, human cancer viruses before the program is created. Uh, many people liken uh, the, uh, the virus uh, cancer program to a moonshot. In that case, it's a moonshot that was building a rocket for a planet people couldn't agree was even out there. And so for me, this is what made it a story, too, of not just science, but politics. But the most powerful thing that the National Cancer Institute and someone like uh, it's, uh, the leader of this program, Carl, uh, Dr. Carl Baker, was saying is we need to do science differently because of how dangerous and how lethal cancer is. Uh, Baker was a fan of getting up at meetings and counting off in a certainly in two minutes and three minutes and four minutes, how many people had died from different cancers in that interval. And the argument would be that with, in the face of that type of urgency uh, and, the, the, and the suffering and the lethality of cancer, we can't simply wait to agree that there is a cancer virus and then move towards a vaccine. We need to do what they've done in the Manhattan Project, where they've done at NASA or other defense programs and start preparing across the whole spectrum of things you would need to do from the discovery of a virus through the development of a vaccine and its mass production. And they need to invest in all of that all at once, even if they don't necessarily know that there's going to be a human cancer virus. So if it's an argument not of uh, if the virus will be found, but when it will be found. Uh, and the answer is they, can only, they will only find it if they sort of mobilize in this very big science way, uh, far in advance of sort of scientific agreement to what they're looking for. Now, who, who were the major skeptics? Did they just think it was a, a waste of time or? Uh, it's, you, you see skeptics, skeptics have many, sort of many different orientations. Uh, you have uh, major virologists like uh, uh, Burnett, uh, who are just based on their knowledge of virology, it's like are saying, we, we can't, we just don't have this yet. Like there's no, there's no proof in terms of how I would demonstrate the link. Uh, you have many doctors uh, from places like, uh, uh, from places like Sloan Kettering, from places like uh, Boston Children's, who just sort of think that, like, just, just sort of think that the, the idea of a virus makes sense in, the, in reference to their clinical experience. Mm -hmm. uh, they're much more, you know, interested in uh, the possibility that, uh, you know, there's a there's other causes, or they just they think the idea of talking about causes is it's a distraction from developing surgery, surgical or chemotherapeutic treatments uh, against cancer, which they see as being the or. Uh, the most, prom most promising way that not thinking about what caused the virus, but really just how to, how to treat it. And so, and you also, especially as the uh, search for a cancer virus becomes more entangled with molecular biology, 
you run into a lot of sort of uh, culture clash issues between people who work in the clinic and people who work in molecular biology. And this disdain sort of runs both ways. You have people like uh, the uh, co-discoverer of uh, the DNA helix, James Watson, calling clinical medicine, uh, clinical research sort of second rate or fourth rate science, depending on which speech he gives. And you have uh, people like, I think this is a doctor, a doctor Black from somewhere in New York who says to Congress, like, why are you gonna trust a molecular biologist like who wouldn't know what cancer was if they had it? Uh, so there's a very like, uh, there's a very, there's, and that's just a, that's just a general like added uh, a question of like, who do you, un, who do you go to, to understand disease? You go to the doctor who has uh, experience with it, or are you sort of getting in these greater and greater degrees of uh, molecular abstraction from the disease itself? Absolutely. Um, and, and when did the tide start to change? This is something that remains unresolved to the core <laughs> of my story. That's the, that's the remarkable thing. I, you, and the, the tide is a political tide and that's uh it's partially the, it's the, oh, within the, the push for the war on cancer of 1971 that Mary Lasker provides, uh, which sort of once again brings, uh, in like a year or a year to a few years, quadruples the budget of the National Cancer Institute and gives it unprecedented authority to oversee scientific research, in particular expanding how much it can use uh, contracts, which is where the government tells people what to do, as opposed to uh, sort of peer-reviewed grants, where the government simply gives them money without trying to control uh, what the course of their research is. And so that really gives the National Cancer Institute this broad power to conduct and sort of sponsor research on viral oncology, despite the fact there are still many critics out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is sort of the and that's the story of the 1970s is sort of uh, people doing research uh, within the National Cancer Institute's patronage network and many people who sort of feel very skeptical uh, for many different reasons on the outside of it. Uh, and the thing that I, I find remarkable is that despite this level of, of controversy, uh, the National Cancer Institute really does make it possible to do viral oncology, especially to start discovering the links between uh, RNA tumor viruses or retroviruses and the genetics of cancer uh, in a way that probably would not have happened uh, for a, quite a while otherwise. Wow, that's really, really interesting. Um, and I'm also curious about when did the idea of curing cancer with the vaccine mm -hmm. come into play? It's a slippery idea uh, because of course, it's, going back to the early, uh, early 20th century, vaccines sit very close to immunotherapy. So you have early, uh, early efforts like uh, Coley's sort of like Coley's toxins, which are the idea that it's somehow possible to engage in immunotherapy against cancer, which is also often called a cancer vaccine, in which case you could imagine curing some a case of cancer uh, versus vaccination as uh, we might understand it, uh, or certainly like the advocates of say uh, the polio vaccine or the influenza vaccine or the, uh, the, the mumps, measles, mumps, measles and rubella vaccine which is a preventative measure that will prevent cancer from occurring in future generations. Uh, and so that's, of course, I, in the early 20th century, those are very commingled uh, due to the fact that virology and bacteriology are not yet fully untangled. And if you think about someone like Robert Koch, you uh, identifying, say, the, the nature of tuberculosis as a, being caused by bacteria. He also is marketing something called tuberculin, which is supposed to be a, a chemotherapy for tuberculosis based on that knowledge. Uh, so that nexus makes the vaccine a vaccine for a while also sounds like it might be a type of immunotherapy but by the 40s and the 50s vaccines simply mean sort of preventing it in future generations as mm -hmm. opposed to immediately addressing the problems that somebody with cancer would have 
in the in the, in the clinic, which is once again like one of the reasons why some you know some parts of the cancer research community are less enthusiastic about it because it doesn't do anything for the patients that are uh, currently suffering from cancer. It really is something that will help the uh, the next generation. So I guess just putting your your book into context, you know, how does all of this really rich history, you know, starting with you know, killing chickens to extract their tumors in 1911, um, inform where we are today in terms of viral oncology. How did we get here? I think there's probably sort of two, two big arcs uh, that sort of that run through the story. Uh, the first is how we've come to understand the nature of cancer at an increasingly sort of smaller and smaller and smaller scale moving out of the clinic and into animal organism, uh, animal models, uh, into cell culture, and now into, of course, like the uh, various uh, sort of protein molecular mechanisms we associate with understanding how cancer works and seeing, understanding those mechanisms as a place for developing interventions that might be truly effective. Uh, you know, uh, personalized medicine, immunotherapy, uh, things like that. And of course, a number of cancer vaccines uh, that uh, sort of arise from uh, sort of especially uh, the application of recombinant DNA to vaccine manufacture uh, in the 80s and 90s, uh, and who knows what the next generation will bring. So that's like that's but it really moves the frontier of where we struggle with cancer into the lab into the the laboratory. Uh, the second uh, trend is how cancer research has become bigger and bigger science. It's no longer just one person in a laboratory. It's uh, you know whole institutions being funded by ambitious, forward-looking government programs which in turn means that cancer research is a part of a broader conversation we have in society about how do we deal with health and disease? Uh, who do, what should we be prioritizing? How do we, how do we frame problems like cancer? Are they simply things that we confront in the laboratory? Are they things that we uh, think about in terms of their social and environmental uh, roots? And I think that cancer vaccine research really sits like almost directly at the juncture of those two different ways of talking about it, because it is one of, vaccination as a whole is one of these medical like biomedical interventions that really promises immense aid to human health. Uh, if you can get people vaccines quickly enough, uh, you can really do so much good for them. Uh, and the idea of having vaccines that would be preventative against cancer is, is wonderful. Uh, but it's counterbalanced with this broader awareness that like we need to keep everybody healthy and that as successful as vaccines are, they're only ever going to be one part of the overall toolkit that goes into sort of preventing and dealing with a disease as complicated as cancer. Uh, and I think that's really where these sort of different traditions of you know, public health and experimental biology uh, is still sort of attention woven into how we think about cancer vaccines, cancer viruses, uh, and vaccination generally. And where, where do you see the future of viral oncology headed? Is it, is it this prevention path that we're, we're on? I think we have a number of, of wonderful examples in the prevention path. I mean, the, the things that I, when I walk around Kendall Square uh, in MIT, the thing that of course is, is very exciting is the return actually to that older idea that somehow you can produce vaccines that will target cancer already active in somebody's body. Uh, and people generally ask these questions. I say, if I were, uh, if I knew, if I had a better sense of what the future of this field was, I'd be a stock, uh, I'd be a biotech stockbroker instead of a historian <laughs> of, of biology. But that nonetheless, uh, Seems like an idea that you know I'm 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 rooting for that idea. Let's put it that way. I'm curious that you know when did you determine that this was a story that needed to be told? I didn't think I was going to talk about cancer uh, at all 
I got I I came into uh, my my graduate training uh, and the idea of what I, what book I wanted to first write very much focused on the growth of molecular biology uh, and how it became how in my naive terminology it became big science at <laughs> some point and but wherever I turned when I was trying to understand that story I kept I started finding cancer viruses and uh, as I mentioned they sort of intrigued me I didn't think that they I didn't understand what they had to do with say cellular development, cellular development, uh, or uh, the idea that cancer even had a viral cause. And so I really sort of got dragged into the topic uh, reluctantly, but once I got into it, it's really, I've kept coming back to it and it, it makes me passionate precisely because it's so rich and it confounds so many of the normal intuitions we have about how to understand a disease like cancer. And it also makes us think really hard about how we define success and failure. Uh, in biomedical research, which is a question that I, and I think we all have a very, uh, you know, how you, how you, how you can succeed while failing, but also failing as you succeed. Is there, is there anything else I missed? Um, any really important stories that stand out to you that you'd like to share with us? I think one thing I want to stress, uh, which I think is a very important thing to think about uh, in the sort of, in, as we sort of navigate the current coronavirus uh, pandemic, is the ways that the story that I tell in a contagious cause is really bound up with the boundaries of nationhood. Uh, it's the National Cancer Institute. Mary Lasker and uh, her, her allies are thinking about improving the health of Americans. But this is also a story that if a discussion of Burkitt's lymphoma and Epstein-Barr suggests, uh, it's an international story in terms of how we've understood, understood the nature of cancer. But that also goes to how we understand the nature of what it means to succeed against cancer. Uh, so, for example, uh, in 1978, uh, there's a new director of the National uh, Cancer uh, Institute, I think uh, Arthur Upton, and he convenes this, this group of really eminent Nobel Prize winner, uh, winners in, in virology and uh, in, 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 uh, uh, in chemistry and, and other sort of experts on different ways of thinking about the nature of cancer and different ways of treating cancer to sort of assess where they are. Uh, and uh, David Baltimore, who at that point has already won his Nobel Prize for the discovery or co-discovery of reverse transcriptase, uh, is sparring with uh, Baruch Blumberg, uh, who is about to get a Nobel Prize, I think, or maybe just got his Nobel Prize for the discovery of uh, hepatitis B virus, uh, regarding the prospects of whether or not it would be possible to develop a meaningful vaccine against uh, hepatitis B, uh, especially given some of the new evidence that we've seen that it might be linked to, to liver cancer. And uh, Baltimore is saying, well, look, at, we really don't understand the molecular, I'm paraphrasing Baltimore here, I'm not quoting him directly. Uh, we don't understand the mechanism by which this infection causes cancer, which has been the questions that bedevils virology, uh, you know, viral oncology. Uh, and, and we until we understand the mechanism better, we really can't do this. And Bruce Blumberg speaking from sort of more of a public health perspective, he says, well, we know we develop vaccines all the time uh, without understanding the mechanism by which a virus actually causes disease. That's not that's not a problem. They're, they're sort of going back and forth. And the way that uh, Baltimore decides to end that exchange is by saying, even if you could prevent every single case of liver cancer uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, or maybe he says East Africa, you wouldn't have responded to our mandate to deal with cancer here at home. Uh, because at that time, the association between hepatitis B and liver cancer was something that was being discussed in, in East Asia and sub-Saharan Africa and wasn't really seen as a problem in the United States. And that's where the you know, things stop. Uh, and of course, globally speaking, uh, a vaccine against hepatitis B does come into the fore and it becomes one of the most meaningful interventions we've been able to make against 
cancer using vaccines. Uh, but in the framework of that room in 1978 in the United, in the United States, that's not seen as a success. Mm -hmm. uh, other things are, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when we think about success or failure, especially as we now are beginning to reckon with cancer, not just as the disease of, uh, you know, quote unquote, developed nations, but really as a global disease, it's going to also require us to think very critically about sort of how we understand what success and failure are, not only in abs the absolute sense, but really in the, you know, from, from nation to nation and region to region. The Cancer History Project is a collaborative historical resource operated by the Cancer Letter. This is an ongoing project and would not be possible without the input and materials provided by our editorial board, our contributors, and the support of our sponsors, including Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, City of Hope, SWOG Cancer Research Network and the Hope Foundation for Cancer Research, Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, Sarah Cannon Research Institute, UPMC Hillman Cancer Center, University of Chicago Comprehensive Cancer Center, and many others. View a few lists of our sponsors at cancerhistoryproject.com slash sponsors. If your institution would like to participate in the Cancer History Project, email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com.